Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi there and welcome again to the Explaining History podcast and today I'm going to talk a little bit about Great Britain's class system on the eve of the um, Second World War. Now one of the things that's interesting uh, about the 1930s is that you can see um, trends in British social history um, that later become very dominant in the 1960s, 70s and even the 1980s um, in their kind of embryonic form in the 1930s, a decline in deference, the erosion of the assumption um, that women were uh, second-class citizens uh, and they're really to uh, obey the whims of their husbands, um, questions of sexual morality, which um, became areas of public debate in the 60s, 70s and 80s, we're gradually beginning to uh, change as early as the the, the 1930s, uh, an era where um, male homosexuality uh, was still illegal. The idea that there was such a thing as female homosexuality uh, was uh, barely kind of a, a, a concept as far as public discourse uh, went, uh, where sex before marriage only really occurred probably when the, uh, an engagement had been um, decided and children having children out of wedlock was um, a source of uh, immense shame. Um, so they, there are the beginnings of these sorts of social changes. But the one that I find most compelling is uh, the attitude towards social class. And the 1930s, it is an era where the middle classes uh, begin to really uh, dominate as uh, as a social group. Um, the the upper classes who had uh, been uh, in steady decline throughout the second half of the nineteenth century uh, and whose um, estates were gradually less and less valuable, less and less. Uh, important sources of income, who faced um, growing death duties, um, who had lost significant um, numbers of their ranks in the First World War, were uh, a kind of a, a declining group 
in the, the 1930s. Um, today we're going to look at Britain's War by Daniel Todman. It's a, a stunning book. It's the first vo uh, volume of a, a, a two-part uh, series that runs from before the war, 1937, up to 1941. Social class defined uh, probably most societies in the mid-1930s, but Great Britain seems to be uh, a kind of uh, a lightning rod almost for the discussion of class. Um, other supposedly more egalitarian societies like the US um, tried to kind of avoid the, the discussion of class or to uh, look upon social class as being a kind of a quaint European uh, tradition, uh, even though it's, it was a kind of ab abundantly uh, present in uh, any uh, modern industrialised society. Um, Daniel Todman writes, When mass observers recounted the coronation, um, they talked uh, about class to describe the differences within their society. Like many Britons, they could place themselves and others easily within three categories, upper, middle and working, by using speech, dress and behaviour as indicators of income, occupation and family background. So the um, organisation, uh, Mass Observation, uh, which was one of the very first social research organisations uh, in Britain, was uh, able to give a kind of, throughout the 1930s and the war, and, and thereafter, a kind of running commentary uh, about social change, often done from what we would now look on today as being a relatively unscientific uh, basis. Uh, but they were, uh, they, they had uh, specific classifications for what represented different types of uh, social class and used some fairly broad and often kind of uh, arbitrary or what might seem prejudicial ways of, of indicating this, particularly uh, looking at speech, dress and behaviour. The uh, landed aristocracy had been uh, gradually in decline, as mentioned, um, throughout the, the 19th century. And they had been, it had been land specifically and land ownership that had been the marker of aristocratic status. Throughout the 19th century, a, a new um, mercantile bourgeoisie, a new industrial bourgeoisie, uh, had emerged and had often been uh, able to uh, use the wealth created by an industrial revolution to kind of eclipse the, the landed aristocracy. Uh, in their wealth and power. Um, however, there were a still um, there's still a kind of a, a deep cultural focus on the affairs of the aristocracy. Um, society columns in things like the Pall Mall Gazette and uh, other newspapers uh, that would uh, follow the uh, various affairs of uh, different aristocrats um, and the uh, culture of um, uh, flattering write-ups about society balls uh, and um, events that uh, ordinary people have no access to. Daniel Todman writes, Numerically tiny and socially concentrated in an area before widespread home ownership, the upper class remained, at the end of the 1930s, extremely rich relative to the rest of the population. The best-off 1% of the population retained well over half of the nation's wealth. 
So obviously this um, was came under assault by a kind of a long period of social democracy throughout the 20th century by I think 1975 wealth inequality was at the lowest it had ever been um, from 1976 onwards uh, it begins to gradually tick upwards until we've uh, reverted to a rather similar um, rather similar levels of wealth inequality now um, as uh, essentially social democracy was rolled back by neoliberal ideas the Windsor family the royal family um, the wealthiest of the aristocracy um, had been carefully rebranded by George V, um, the, the king's father who died in uh, 1936, as um, representatives of Britishness, representatives of um, virtue, uh, of stability and of uh, charitable endeavour. This was a trick really that had been pioneered, pioneered by uh, Prince Albert in the 19th century when um, uh, following his marriage to Queen Victoria he rather sensibly asked what is it if, if a, uh, a monarch, if uh, a member of the royal family has no direct role in government what do they do, what is their purpose, we better kind of uh, imagine one before other people start to ask that question and so uh, Prince Albert started the tradition of royals being patrons of uh, arts, science, engineering, agriculture and all supposedly positive things. The vehicle by which the aristocracy retained power, even though many of them had lost um, overt political power, was the Conservative Party. Um, and the, the combination of uh, the Conservative Party of the uh, ability to monopolise uh, key positions within the armed forces um, and the um, ability to uh, retain certain perks and privileges and social ranks meant that the new aristocracy began to um, mingle um, not only with the rising uh, industrial bourgeoisie of, of Great Britain uh, at certain gentlemen's clubs, lords and aristocrats would um, smoke cigars with uh, Cunard uh, magnates and uh, railway barons and people who had made vast amounts of money through coal, uh, through publishing uh, and uh, other, uh, other industries. But also a rising global plutocracy, um, the, uh, the wealthy um, of uh, other countries who had perhaps sent their children to be educated in Great Britain, um, spent their time uh, rubbing shoulders with the British aristocracy, um, and a, a complex system of interconnected friendships, relationships, uh, and uh, mutual associations obviously, um, obviously emerged. And in the heart of all of this, of course, is the city of London. The affairs of uh, financially savvy members of the upper classes were managed through the city of London uh, and often uh, in exchanges in, such as the, the New York Stock Exchange, which show a kind of um, the beginnings of uh, globalised finance. 
uh, Winston Churchill himself, during the in the run up to the Wall Street crash, took a uh, steamship to New York to find out for himself whether the rumours of a stock market crash were true. And Britain's aristocracy was also able to purchase itself a kind of cultural capital by being patrons of rising stars in the gramophone and cinema industry. Um, Ivan Novello was invited to many parties uh, at country houses and uh, um, aristocratic estates. Uh, so the association between uh, rising cultural stars and a fading aristocracy tended to do a lot to try to keep the aristocracy appearing at least kind of uh, contemporary. However, the real story of the 1930s is about the middle classes, and Daniel Todman writes, For all its public prominence, the upper class was less and less politically influential. Locally and nationally, public life was dominated by middle class men. The middle classes, the widest sector of society in terms of range of income, made up about a quarter of the population. They included rich business owners whose fortunes carried them to the edge of the upper class of an upper class lifestyle, and the lawyers, doctors, clergymen and military officers who traditionally made up the professional middle class. The changes uh, in the economy since the start of the century had greatly increased the number of clerks and salesmen then generally identified as making up the lower middle class. The middle classes were therefore growing, and the most striking development of the 1930s was the emergence of a new stratum of salaried technicians, engineers, management managers, draftsmen, and scientists required in the up-to-the-minute the, up industries. It was the lower middle classes, I think, offered the Conservative Party one of the uh, most promising uh, opportunities for uh, continuance of power in an age of uh, mass democracy, trade unions and a growing labour movement. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Uh, and the story that the Conservative Party told the lower middle classes was one of aspiration that um, home ownership, savings, prudence, low taxes um, and a spirit of uh, enterprise and getting ahead 
um, was uh, part of the offer, part of the offer, uh, which was an entirely kind of individualistic one, that the collectivism of trade union membership uh, and of the collective institutions of labour life, the working men's club, uh, the pub, the uh, trade union, uh, were antithetical to the aspirations of the lower middle class. And the lower middle classes are just economically vulnerable enough to find this story very appealing. The idea that um, in um, a, uh, a matter of years or perhaps in the matter of a generation that the family can make it up the social ladder to um, a position that's more financially secure and where there is a greater chance of um, social kudos and uh, acceptance uh, for them. The lives of the lower middle classes are really very different from the top echelons of the British bourgeoisie. Um, a successful British businessman who might make several thousand pounds uh, a year uh, live in a, a large detached suburban house and actually have live-in servants because obviously during the 1930s service is one of the, the, the big employers uh, in, uh, in Britain might have a couple of children at um, public school and be able to afford such luxuries as a telephone, uh, a car and um, holidays perhaps in the uh, in Great Britain or even overseas holidays lived a very different kind of life from the uh, the draftsman or the small uh, business owner, the small shopkeeper or the um, technician who might live in uh, on an income maybe uh, 10 times smaller so you're talking a few hundred pounds a year um, who would live in a kind of a small suburban mortgaged house um, might have a uh, season ticket for the train so rely heavily on public transport um, and have uh, one child uh, or two children going through the grammar school system um, the thing that kind of unites the two, the aspiration and the philosophy that unites the two, um, because one might, you know, conceivably argue that these two um, people, with supposedly within the same social class, have actually kind of slightly different class interests. The thing that unites the two is the interest in home ownership and the belief that home ownership is um, uh, available for all uh, and is a, uh, a virtue that all will enjoy and something that will uh, not just lift um, the, the, uh, the poor out of poverty but will be a kind of a, de a device for enriching the individual. Both social groups within the middle classes tended to look at uh, paid for secondary education, private health insurance, private unemployed insurance and private provision of the basics of life as being virtues. Um, the idea of uh, state assistance is seen as something for poorer people, something to be relatively embarrassed about or ashamed of. And this uh, shame um, at um, charity, this shame at public assistance, filtered down into working class families uh, as well. We tend to see the aspiration to having low taxes as being uh, something of the 1980s, a, a thing of the era of Margaret Thatcher. But it's not. The middle classes of the 1930s 
um, had uh, similar aspirations. And bear in mind that Margaret Thatcher herself came from this bourgeois world uh, in the, uh, the 1930s. Um, her worldview was shaped uh, as a young woman in this time period. And it was the Great Depression that threw this comfortably ordered world, obviously, into crisis. Um, the middle classes um, found that the economic slump um, and the business failure that went uh, into it resulted in um, having to be more prudent with uh, things like savings and um, family finances, rarely did it involve the kind of unemployment that the working classes in places like South Wales, um, the North West or Tyneside or Northern Ireland uh, experienced. Far from it, um, they, the loss of status uh, that was experienced um, by the middle classes didn't really translate into long-term uh, unemployment. Mainly because in certain uh, the in certain areas where uh, there were kind of large concentrations of um, Britain's bourgeoisie, these tended to be the areas where new light industries were e emerging, and these new light industries um, were responsible for creating generations of uh, middle class Britons. The uh, middle classes uh, benefited from falling house prices during the 1930s and from the boom in private house construction after about 1935 and the growing supply of new consumer goods that made life kind of easier, uh, more convenient. And so living standards for middle class people overall considerably improved during the 1930s. Um, and created a sort of like a, a culture of uh, domesticity and suburbia. The uh, writer John Betjeman uh, writes kind of uh, favourably uh, about uh, Metroland, which was uh, a, a kind of uh, a stretch of um, suburbia that runs from uh, London all the way into Buckinghamshire, northwards up to kind of around Aylesbury, um, where there were small uh, new towns connected by rail travel uh, and new suburban houses which he thought was really as, as close to an English heaven as, as imaginable. And something interesting begins to emerge in this period of time. Uh, Daniel Todman describes it as this. The domesticity that, in, uh, that this encouraged was matched with a growing idealisation among the middle classes of the companionate marriage in which husband and wife spent time and took decisions together, not least to limit the number of children they had, since middle-class families were relatively small and getting smaller. And here are the beginnings of social trends towards marriage and towards gender roles that um, perpetuate throughout the century. Um, the conception of the, the modern marriage uh, that seems to be dominant uh, in Britain uh, now, the idea of a relative degree of, of equality, or at least that's kind of the uh, uh, the, the, the goal, uh, with um, perhaps a smaller number of children, um, a greater participation between uh, both uh, genders in terms of work inside the home and outside the home, and finance um, uh, is um, 
begins as it has its kind of embryonic seeds in uh, the 1930s, in the social changes of the 1930s. So not to suggest for a moment that uh, married life in the 1930s was in any way as kind of um, liberal as uh, it perhaps um, is meant to be now. But here we're interested in the beginnings of these sorts of um, social trends. Um, and of course, women were legally entitled to enter professions, uh, you know, medicine, edu- uh, teaching, finance and um, government work. Uh, and their, uh, the expectations of women in the, ni- women in the 1930s was beginning to transition and change. And it was uh, relatively common for women to have replaced men at uh, lower levels of um, white-collar work, such as secretarial work uh, and other kind of clerical sorts of, of positions uh, by the early 1930s. Most employers uh, operated a marriage bar, uh, which was only removed after the Second World War, uh, which would require women to resign uh, once they got married. And the resulting um, division um, between a basically male world of work and a female um, world of uh, domesticity was still, to a greater extent, uh, present throughout the 1930s, though beginning to slightly break down. Um, and it was replicated politically, so despite um, the uh, extension of the franchise to all women by the end of the 1920s, there were very few women in Parliament, um, and their voices were focused uh, disproportionately on uh, matters of things such as motherhood and social welfare. Um, Women of uh, wealth, society ladies, uh, and some education were able to um, focus on on voluntary efforts and good works and that sort of thing to improve a lot of the poor. Um, But within, uh, this would mean that they were forced to stay within certain conventional boundaries of what he was considered that female that women knew about of female expertise um, and this would um, present uh, them with a public role uh, but in a kind of a, a limited and genuinely um, male dominated way most of these boundaries and um, limitations uh, and or op- or in inverted commas opportunities for women were sanctioned by men. The middle classes dominated both political parties throughout the 1920s and 30s, um, and the liberals too. Um, whilst Labour was notionally uh, a party of the working class, by and large it was dominated by bourgeois figures um, uh, who had more in common socially with their conservative counterparts um, than often they did with their constituents. Uh, And it was through this means uh, that the Labour movement and the the Labour Party was somehow um, tamed during the 1930s and uh, able to um, be able to uh, accept and compromise on key areas of uh, of public policy, particularly uh, austerity after 1931. Anyway, thanks very much for listening, and I'll catch you on the next Explaining History podcast. I hope you've enjoyed this and found it useful. All the best. Thank you, and bye-bye.